about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Arigatinos. And we're in the first volume, if you're new to the group. And uh, tonight we are on page 336 of the first volume, letter C at the very bottom of the page. If you remember, we've been speaking a little bit about stability, uh, in particular, stability of place. Uh, but in essence, I think what the authors are putting forward to us is that this stability in one's uh, external surroundings uh, brings a kind of stability interiorly and also allows one to struggle with the passions on, on a deeper level, that it's at times when we have to live with those who irritate us or lead us to frustration or anger uh, that we are perfected over the course of time, that we are purified of these virtues and patience, gentleness uh, is and long-suffering is formed. And uh, most of the stories that we'll be looking at this evening are uh, how this stability is tested and how uh, the evil one seeks through his trickery to draw uh, monks or nuns out of their monastery uh, to move to another place, convincing them that they would live a holier life somewhere else than where they are. Uh, but as we know, we take ourselves with us and often removing us from uh, an environment uh, that actually is formative and protective in some measure uh, unwittingly. And, uh, and so before a person would move uh, to another monastery or for some of these uh, monks who were anchorites who lived on their own, there would often be a desire to move into deeper solitude. For example, if many people started coming out to where they were living, uh, seeking counsel, many of them would want to move into deeper silence and so would go further into the desert. Some would want to uh, do so for the sake of asceticism. Uh, to put themselves, as it were, to the test on a, a physical and spiritual level. But uh, often, again, this can be a form of delusion, and uh, one can end up harming oneself or losing one's vocation altogether. So holding on to where one is at the moment, that physical place uh, helps to foster, again, an internal stability in the midst of the spiritual battle. And, uh, and so it's not as though we never see the monks move to another place, but it's a rarity and for good reason, as we will see. And I, I think for all of us, this teaches us something important. And what I've already mentioned that 
simply by changing our external surroundings, we aren't necessarily going to change what uh, is going on within our own hearts. And, uh, and we're not going to deal more fully with our own weaknesses. So again, letter C, bottom of page 336. The Blessed Synclitica said, if you are in a synovium, do not change your location. For if you do, you will cause yourself great harm. Just as a bird who rises from her eggs makes them addled and barren, so also a virgin or a monk who moves from place to place freezes and mortifies the faith within him. So very powerful and direct, freezes and mortifies the, puts the, uh, in other words, puts to death the, the faith that is within them. Uh, that often it is uh, a weakness of, in our faith that leads to this kind of instability to begin with. And so that's why it is to be struggled with whenever we experience these kinds of temptations. And, uh, and so she tells us very clearly, uh, we do risk doing ourselves great harm. And so hold fast to, to where you are and uh, engage in the battle no matter how difficult it becomes. From the life of St. Theodora, it's a bit of a, a longer story, uh, but I think it makes clear to us uh, the depth of the virtue that can be fostered by remaining even when one is undergoing great persecution. Uh, and this is certainly the most difficult of things to endure, where one is wrongly accused or uh, people grow suspicious of you or treat you poorly. Uh, to remain in such a place, still struggling, uh, not only uh, with one's own faith, but to remain charitable and loving towards others. Uh, certainly, this is the most difficult of things to do. The monastery in which St. Theodora lived, where it was believed that she was a monk, once experienced a shortage of grain. The abbot ordered the Blessed One to take the camels and go into the city to buy grain. She was also given permission in the event that she was unable to return to the monastery in the evening to spend the night in the monastery of Eniton and let the camels rest there as well. And indeed, as she was returning from the city, she saw that the sun was setting and in accordance with the instruction that she had received, sought to give the camels some rest in the monasteries of Eniton. After being shown the place where the animals were left, she herself lay down at the feet of the camels. So if you remember, uh, Theodore is actually Theodora and uh, had uh, hidden her, uh, the fact that she was a woman in order that she could enter into the monastery and uh, live the life with them. And, uh, and so she's, because of her holiness, she's given this task uh, to make this journey and even entrusted with being away from the monastery overnight. Thenceforth, the evil one began to make war against her. He aroused the passion of lust in a young woman who was staying at the monastery, since she was related to some of the monks. In her excited state, the young woman, believing from all that she had seen that the Blessed One was a man, proposed that they sleep together with no shame whatsoever, either on her face or in her soul. When the young woman, goaded on by her passion, saw that Theodora was paying no attention to her, but preferred to remain stretched out on the bare ground next to the camels, and being unable to quench her sinful desire, 
She then gave herself to one of the men sleeping there, himself a traveler and one of the transients who were accustomed to lodging overnight at the monastery. So un, uh, unbeknownst to her, Theodore is Theodora and shows no interest in her, uh, in her desires. At daybreak, the man who had collaborated in the sinful act departed from the monastery and the saint likewise returned to her monastery. But at this time as, time, as time went on, it gradually became apparent that the girl's belly was swelling. In response to the persistent demands of her relatives that she tell them how this had happened, she said that the monk Theodore from the monastery of Octokaidekaton, Theodore's monastery, had deflowered her. The monks, without any investigation, at once believed her words, for the enemy who had devised temptations for the saint and had instructed the girl to say these things also made the monks believe her story. So, you know, lies are easily believed, and especially when they surround something uh, such as scandal. And the evil one is not only going to put individuals to the test as he did this young woman and the young man who lay with her, uh, but also all the monks when they're told the story of Theodore immediately without any investigation believe that it's true. Uh, and, uh, and so we see what then uh, lies ahead for her. In the wake of this, they went with hue and cry to the monastery where the saint lived and shouted, your monk Theodore did not hesitate to perpetuate this foul deed. The abbot then asked Theodora whether she had in fact committed such an abominable act. And she replied that she was not aware of being at all guilty in this regard. The monks at Eniton then returned to their monastery. When the child, the offspring of the sinful union was born, they took it and deposited it at the monastery where Theodora lived. And what happened after this? It was believed that St. Theodora was the father of the infant and without saying anything in her defense, she accepted the condemnation of guilt. Together with the infant, she was banished from the monastery compound. She became the child's nurse and was compelled to look after it like a mother nursing it with sheep's milk and making clothing for it from the wool which she would beg from shepherds. But what soul could accept such serious slander? What hand would not be weighed down by so heavy a service? So the author of the story even, you know, asks, puts the question before us, who would be capable of uh, enduring such slander as this, as if to ask ourselves, uh, you know, would we be able to endure uh, even something much less, uh, you know, perhaps criticism uh, from those with, with whom we live and unjust criticism sometimes is enough to stir us into great anger, rage, and want to uh, break ways with others or uh, whether it's only momentary or permanently, but it can be enough to break down such relationships. But here is one, a saintly soul, who's willing to bear the worst kind of slander, of course, for uh, a monk, uh, and uh, also then to take the care uh, of, the, of the child. 
Seven years passed, during which time her womanly nature was subjected to hardship. O eyes of God that see all things, slandered by a malevolent accusation, she was expelled from her monastery as if she had willingly committed an awful act and now wanted to cover it up by her self-imposed shame. Along with all of these torments went her manner of life. That is, she ate wild herbs and drank water, which she drew from the lake as she could. Albeit one should rather say that she drank the tears that ran day and night from her eyes. Indeed, she put into practice the verse of the psalm, for I mingled my drink with weeping. And so there is, and we've often talked about this, a kind of morbid delight and satisfaction that individuals can take in uh, attacking others when they believe that they found them in some deceit or some great sin. And, you know, certainly in this case, the uh, Theodora is innocent, but even if a person is not innocent uh, of such things, uh, at times people uh, enjoy, as we've often talked about, the embracing for themselves the prerogative that belongs to God alone, which is to judge a soul. Uh, even when we know that there are certain events like this that happen, uh, we don't know uh, the, uh, what was going on in the individual's mind and heart or the depth of their repentance or what brought them to this state. And so even when we see things with our own eyes or even when something like this would prove true, uh, we are to maintain a kind of generosity of spirit towards them. And here the monks weren't able even to do that. They expel her from the monastery and she's brought into great poverty while also caring for the child. And so not only do they not love uh, Theodora, but they don't lo love the child for whom now she's responsible. Thusly, therefore did her body waste away. And since she took no care for her physical needs, her nails had grown resembling the talons of the most savage beast. Her hair was shaggy and dry and was left unkempt like wild weeds. Her face exposed as it were to the rays of the sun became darker and darker and her eyelids had become distorted from her protracted vigils. And yet even though she became the worse for wear in the face of such misfortunes and was beaten down not only by the snow showers and also by temptations, for all that, she resolved not to withdraw from the monastery, even for a short time. She had set up her hut at the outer edge of the gate, outer gate of the monastery and stayed there, gladly preferring to be an outcast there and keeping with the prophet David. Who can even say how many other temptations the devil brought on her in that place without, however, being able to defeat her? And so we don't even know uh, certainly what uh, further temptations would have come upon her uh, in her great sorrow and physical suffering, certainly, uh, that there have been many ways that the evil one would have been able to attack her, to undermine not only her commitment to the monastic life, but uh, undermine her faith altogether, altogether, making her feel abandoned by God 
and uh, and so she could have easily been shaken. And so we can imagine, the author tells us, that what she bore was far worse than just the physical elements, that the, the spiritual attacks that she had to undergo during this time were probably much worse. On one occasion, the devil impersonated her husband, lingering around her with deceitful words and begging her to return to her house. But with the sign of the cross and prayer, she caused him to vanish. On another occasion, Satan presented her with the illusion that all the wild beasts of the desert were attacking her. Once again, by means of prayer, she dispelled these apparitions like smoke. And so we're given a few examples, you know, visions of wild beasts and visions of those from the past, all beckoning her to let go or give up uh, in this spiritual battle or to despair. On yet another occasion, it appeared to her that hordes of men had set upon her and inflicted unbearable injuries so that she was left half dead. From time to time, the devil would put various foods and large quantities of gold before her. In the end, he could not succeed in bending her resolve by any of these machinations. From all of this, he who boasted that he could annihilate the earth and the sea now understood that St. Theodora was unassailable and invincible. And for this reason, he decided to break off his warfare against her. So it's no small virtue uh, to be described as, have one's faith described as being invincible or one's hope in God as being invincible. And so we get some sense uh, of her virtue here that despite all the things that the evil one had done to her, uh, she becomes almost a Job-like figure, unwilling to... Uh, let go of her faith, despite what had befallen her. After seven years had passed, the monks of Enneton Lavra went and begged the abbot to receive back the saint, whom, as we have said, they believed to be a man, and numbered him with the remainder of the monks, because they said it was sufficient punishment for him to remain at the entrance of the monastery for seven continuous years. To this appeal of theirs, they added that they had learned from a divine vision that God had already forgiven Theodore. Yielding to these entreaties, the abbot freed Theodore from her unjust sentence. After enjoining that she stay in the most secluded cell, no one was to approach her, nor was she to be assigned to any duties in the monastery. And so despite the fact that uh, once the evil one leaves, the, and the, the monks themselves take pity on her. The abbot is still uh, very stringent in his, street, uh, his treatment of her, that after receiving her back into the monastery, only at the most distant cell, and not really allowing her to have any contact whatsoever with, with any of the monks. And, uh, and on one level, one could understand this, the, the gravity of the sin uh, in his mind, uh, uh, and certainly how it could often be looked upon, especially when goaded on by the rest of the monks uh, after all this time, that uh, he's unrelenting in this regard. And so she uh, continues on in this deep isolation. And uh, spiritually, 
this can be one of the most difficult things. Father Seraphim Rose, who is a Russian Orthodox monk, uh, once said that often God will allow us to experience uh, this kind of isolation in our life, uh, not necessarily what Theodore experienced, but a kind of a deep isolation uh, from others for one reason or another. And uh, it's often in that isolation that uh, great transformation takes place in terms of one's clinging to God in, in, in faith where uh, there is no light or consolation that is given, but one out of a kind of raw endurance. Um, I remember reading one Carthusian that describes it almost like a, a, a kind of raw animal kind of endurance, uh, more like a rock than anything else, that one has to persevere through certain periods of one's life where nothing seems to offer uh, consolation and where there does not seem to be any relief uh, in sight. And, um, and so it can be important for us to remember stories from the scriptures like Job or from the saints where uh, the endurance was heroic and, uh, and, and also bore great fruit. Two further years passed during which the saint lived in isolation and closed in, in her cell with greater abstinence and more fervent prayers. In this period of two years, there was such a great uh, drought in that region that the wells and reservoirs of the Cenobium did not have so much as a drop of water. So the abbot, since he had ascertained from all that he saw and heard that the blessed one had received the gift of miraculous intervention, sent for her and ordered her to take a jar and go to the well to fetch water. For her part, having learned to obey the abbot without subjecting the orders given by him to any scrutiny or putting off carrying them out, she promptly did as she was instructed and she immediately brought up the jar filled with water. From that moment on, all the wells seemed to be full of water. And so, you know, at this moment, she becomes so completely conformed uh, to Christ, a kind of perfect obedience is given uh, to the abbot, uh, that even after all, all these many years of suffering and in isolation, uh, is asked uh, to aid uh, the monastery because of the lack of water. And, uh, and she does so without any questioning of it. And what this produces, obviously, is uh, a miraculous uh, kind of event. All the, all the wells seem to fill with water at once. And uh, again, you know, our, I think our minds go back to the scriptures, almost like a Moses-like figure who strikes the rock in the middle of the desert uh, and water comes forth, Theodora, becomes this kind of image, you know, for her monastery, uh, who's uh, without water, uh, and despite how she's been treated, responds immediately. After several days had elapsed, she took the child and shut herself up with her in her cell. Throughout the night, she counseled him concerning perfection according to Christ. While giving this advice, she committed her soul into the hands of God with thanksgiving. 
Thereupon, the child began to weep and lament, filling the cells with his cries. All of those nearby understood that she had died on account of these lamentations, and they reported this to the abbot. As soon as the abbot heard the news, he related to the monks who had come to inform him about Theodora's death, a dream, uh, a dream he had had. It seems, he said, that I saw two men raising me up to an immeasurable height. There I saw a company of angels and a voice reverberated in my ears. Observe, it said, how many good things have been prepared for Theodora, my bride. At the same time, I saw a uh, uh, a couch which was guarded by an angel and a bridal chamber of indescribable beauty. Since I had an intense desire to find out what bridal chamber it was that I saw and who the woman was for whom they had made all these preparations, I was in the process of asking my guides about all of this when suddenly I caught sight of a choir of prophets, apostles, and martyrs. And in the middle of that choir, there was a woman dressed in radiant garments who entered the bridal chamber and appeared to sit on the couch. So it's interesting, isn't it, that she's in the midst of, in the middle of, and uh, as, being, as if being praised uh, by this choir of prophets, apostles, and martyrs, so great was her sanctity. Those who were escorting that wondrous woman said that it was the soul of Abba Theodore, to whom the sin of fornication had been falsely imputed and who chose to be persecuted for seven whole years in exile from the monastery and to be considered the father of a stranger's child, nurturing and educating it, then to reveal what sex she really was and thereby to free herself from such great shame and hardship. For this reason, as you see, the soul's escorts continued. She was counted worthy of such splendor. When I saw these things, sleep left my eyes, and I began to weep for my sins. After concluding this narrative, he immediately went to the other monks to the saint with the other monks to the saint's cell. When they arrived, they saw her who was truly alive, dead. On drawing near, they shed tears over that sacred body. The abbot then sent for the monks of Eniton, in whose presence he uncovered several members of her sacred body, while he said to them, Behold this most marvelous sight, how the female sex deceived the prince of darkness in such a way. Naturally, they were all astounded by what they saw, and they were gripped by fear, when they pondered with how much toil those held captive by bodily passions must struggle, and their tears followed upon his fear, this fear. Towards evening, when they had already finished their lamentations, they buried that much suffering and most sacred body with psalms, hymns, and the requisite funeral honors. So, you know, again, I think when we read stories like this, I don't expect them uh, to be enjoyable uh, for people to hear or listen to, or even, I think, on a surface level, to be understandable. I, I think uh, there's something about them that are uh, they're jarring to the sensibilities uh, because they push us beyond what is reasonable. 
um, and from a purely human perspective, and even from uh, the level of natural virtue, there is something that is quite abhorrent about the story as a whole. And, uh, and so we are left to struggle with it. Uh, and I think for good reason, because all of these stories are meant to draw us uh, not to simply admire natural virtue or what we are capable of uh, uh, by our own strength or how we've been created by God, but what we are capable of aided by that which is supernatural, by the grace of God, that here Theodora becomes a true confessor of the faith, that her obedience is so conformed to that of Christ uh, that uh, then she stands in the midst of all of the prophets, apostles, and martyrs and is acknowledged for her great virtue and that she's brought to the bridal chamber, as it were, in order to be united to Christ, the, the heavenly bridegroom. And, uh, and so what, what we are be, being presented with is that which is heavenly. And, uh, and again, something I think only uh, in accord with the depth of our faith can we enter into the mystery of it that what God offers us is perfect love and life. And it is for all of us to reach out to that uh, with a perfect faith and hope in him and his promises, even in the face of what is unendurable and to imitate Christ in enduring the unendurable. Uh, there is no one who was more perfectly innocent than Christ himself. And so what is jarring and seems incredibly unjust to us in Theodora is nothing in comparison to what Christ bore on our behalf. And yet we often take that for granted. Uh, and uh, we lose sight of the, the radical nature of it. And uh, our hearts are often not moved with the tear with tears over that reality as the monks were moved to tears over the, the sight of the of what was true in regards to Theodora's innocence and the the beauty of of her love uh, both for this child for the monastic life for virtue and uh, and so I never want us to move away or explain away these stories that are, I think, jarring to our sensibilities in that regard. And we have to, in some sense, be willing to sit with them. And, uh, you know, and I think in, in large measure, I think when we see a cooling of faith in our world or within the church, a kind of lukewarmness, or one might say mediocrity, what it is that we are satisfied with and how we respond on a day-to-day -day mo and moment-to-moment -moment basis in terms of the call of our response to the call of love and fidelity and virtue. Um, you know, we can settle into that which is very comfortable, you know, certainly that which is far more reasonable than what Theodora uh, went through. 
And uh, in the Eastern Rite, the, the, the gospel this weekend was about the uh, paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, and uh, he's unable to get himself into the stirring waters. You remember the story? And, uh, and it's striking. Whenever I read that gospel passage, the first thing that Christ says to him is, do you want to be healed? <laughs> and uh, it's, and when you read it, at first it sounds cruel. It's like, goodness sake, after 38 years of struggling to get into this therapeutic pool of water that would stir occasionally, Christ asked him, do you want to be healed? But I often feel that there's something really very important for us to hear in that question. Uh, do you want to be, do you want to be healed? Uh, because Christ-likeness can be very attractive from a distance. But when we get even a little bit close to it, then we begin to reconsider things. And, uh, and so we, we will remove ourselves, we'll crawl back to our familiar niche, like that paralytic, and uh, be comfortable under the weight and the burden and the affliction of our sin that cripples us. And so the question that Christ puts to him stands before all of us. Do you, do you want to be healed? Is this tr something that you truly desire? It's freely given, but is it really something that is wanted? And everything, everything depends on our, our answer to that question. It is radical and all important and its very nature. And I think this story that we listen to, as so many of them, uh, puts that same kind of question to us. Uh, do you want to be healed? Uh, do you love Christ? Uh, do you desire virtue and fidelity? And uh, do you desire to be conformed to Christ in obedience? Uh, in accord with the wisdom of the, of the kingdom uh, or not. And uh, in some ways, we are to count the cost of, of what it is to, to live a Christian, as a Christian, and to follow Christ. Because if we don't, and if we don't make that ascent, then it isn't long before we uh, slip back into that mediocrity uh, because you know the moment that we begin to be afflicted uh, I think our nat natural defenses jump into play and we want to hold upon hold on to our self-esteem our our ego in in some form or fashion and Theodora as we see had set all of that aside you know no sense of ego within her no sense of self-esteem, of, of needing to protect the integrity of her character, even before her fellow monks or the abbot. You know, what was most important was, was her virtue. Any comments about this story or anything at all? <laughs> okay. 
So from the Durant Khan, which is a, a compendium of the writings of, of the fathers, an elder said, if in the place in which one finds oneself, he attempts to do something good, but is unable to do so, let him not think that he can accomplish it in another place. So, you know, there's often this temptation for us, even with the thought of like, of doing good, we can have it in our mind that what we are doing is bearing a certain fruit. And because it is bearing a certain fruit that we need to guard and protect it in and of itself. And, uh, not realizing that it might not be what God desires for us or that what God desires for us for, from us is something far greater in the sense of the perfection of our faith, that sometimes we will uh, pursue certain paths more because they appeal, again, to something, even for us on a spiritual level, uh, appeal to our imagination from a, steer, uh, a spiritual standpoint or fulfill a desire from a spiritual standpoint, that we can elevate it in its importance, that we're unwilling to let go of it whenever something threatens it. And so uh, what this elder is telling us that, you know, don't, don't think that uh, if a certain place prevents you from doing it, you, you'll necessarily be able to accomplish it where, where if you were to go somewhere else, or even if you were able to accomplish it going someplace else, that it would bear the fruit that you imagine that it would bear, especially if you're letting go of your virtue uh, at that moment and moving away more from the pain of having what you are doing being called into question or its value. And so being driven, again, more by self-esteem, ego, or pride than the, than the will of God. I just want to response, respond to one comment here. Ashley writes, what you said about scripture where Jesus asked, do you want to be well, reminded me of part of the surrender novena to the sacred heart. In pain, you pray for me to act, but that I may act in the way you want. You do not turn to me. Instead, you want me to adapt to your ideas. You are not sick people who ask the doctor to cure you, but rather sick people who tell the doctor how to. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's excellent, actually, and very true. And I think it captures, too, what this elder is talking about here, that often <laughs> hidden underneath even some of our spiritual pursuit, pursuits is the self. And uh, an elevation of what is that we are doing. And uh, we have to be careful, you know, even, even with something like evangelization, you know, we can be putting ourselves forward in a way that has more to do with us. And we might be presenting the faith in such a way that has more to do with us than a person who, who is relatively silent and yet bear, bears witness in their very being to the fullness of the gospel. And, uh, and so, again, we have to make sure that we are always uh, being obedient. And again, going back to the meaning of the word, ab adere, that we are listening to the word that God is speaking to the heart. And we are responding to, to that particular call. And it's only when we are obedient on that level 
uh, that we can be sure that we aren't again following simply our own willfulness, no matter how how virtuous it might seem to us on the surface. And so, in the spiritual life, there's it's always slow moves, putting things to the test. Oh, and not just for a short period of time. Well, I'll pray and fast about this for a short period of time, but for years uh, that we put things to the test to make sure that it's not simply arising out of, again, oneself. And as we go through some of these other stories, we it becomes clear when a monk wants to take upon himself greater asceticism or wants to enter into a life of greater solitude, that uh, he would not do that without the counsel of his elder or spiritual uh, father, uh, but then and then only after testing it and putting it to the test for perhaps many years. Um, Saint Charbel, I've often brought up here, uh, you know, it was after living years within the monastery and this deep obedience uh, and undergoing many trials himself, that then he's made by the superior, the uh, hermit of the community, uh, that he doesn't even choose, he doesn't choose that solitude for himself, uh, but it arises out of what the abbot sees within him. Uh, one who is able to engage in the spiritual battle on that level that is necessary for one to live a life of solitude. Because we see here in this story of Theodora that in that isolation, she continues to be tested and even more fiercely by the evil one. And so if you remember in that little movie about uh, St. Charbel, the abbot tells the community, this is not an award. Uh, for Charbel, you know, uh, going off to become the hermit, that he's entering into a greater spiritual warfare and doing so, that what he's, you know, he's not being given a privilege so much as he's taking upon himself a role that another had played for the community, he's now going to embrace it which is this deeper life of prayer and silence, but also spiritual warfare. Louise writes, could it be that Theodora fully accepted this ordeal because she had previously deceived the monks of the monastery uh, into believing that she was a man? Thus, this was ju a just punishment by God, which she embraced. Uh, that one could surmise that, but I don't, from my reading of the story, and from some similar stories within among the fathers, uh, I don't think this is the the sense sense that I get of things that uh, her her hiding her identity, uh, I think, is often presented as this virtue in order that she could enter into what would be more or seen as more challenging into the discipline of the monastic life, and they even sort of. Uh, it might be uh, contrary to our modern sensibilities, but even how they describe it into the next to last paragraph, uh, behold the most marvelous sight, how the female sex deceived the prince of darkness in such a way, you know, that, that uh, you know, I think we could take sort of exception to that, but the idea that she would be the weaker sex is what's sort of being put forward. 
and here she has the virtue, virtus. She has this strength uh, to uh, overcome the deceiver, that she has this unassailable faith. And so I see what you're saying. It's just that I think in the, their way of writing about things and thinking about things, I think they would see her entering, cloaking her femininity as her desire for virtue. So not as deceit, even though I think from our perspective, we would say, you know, there's a kind of problem there spiritually in doing that. Uh, you know, I think that jumps out for us, but for them, no. I mean, for, for her it was this greater desire for God and for virtue that drives her to do this. Uh, let's see here. Okay. So Ama Theodora mentioned again, said that there was a monk who bothered by a multitude of temptations said to himself, leave this place. When he had fetched his sandals, he saw another man putting on his sandals too, who said to him, are you not leaving because, are, are you not leaving because of me? I will go before you wherever you intend to go. This was the demon who tempted him. So the very demon who tempted him to leave is at the same time putting on his sandals to follow him. And in fact, we'll get there before him and be waiting, waiting for him. And again, that's what often happens that, you know, fleeing one cross is not necessarily going to bring us a lighter one. In fact, it might bring us a heavier one than we ever imagined that God would provide us to an with the grace that we need to endure all that we face if we remain faithful. But if we flee that cross, we might experience something far greater. From St. Ephraim, <clears throat> I desire to remind you, my brothers, about those who undertake excessive feats and fall into fearful dangers. They pay no heed to Holy Scripture, which says one should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but should think soberly. In another place, it is said, be not very just, neither be very wise, lest thou be confounded. So not to be, not to estimate oneself and to think of oneself highly. So don't even sort of try to come up with an estimation of your own value or your own strength, first of all. And if you do, don't think that you're stronger or more virtuous than what you really are, because there's a likelihood that you're being deluded by, by the evil one. And so have a humble estimation of yourself and not uh, take upon excessive uh, ascetical practices. So isn't that interesting? You know, I think we often uh, imagine that the monks is taking upon themselves the extraordinary uh, kinds of disciplines, but permeated, permeating the spiritual writings of the great ascetics from Cassian to Climacus to the Evergatinos, we're reminded over and over again that moderation is very important, that extremes in either direction can be very dangerous. And so there's a kind of wisdom in not pushing ourselves uh, beyond. We have to stretch ourselves uh, in our ascetical practices, but not to a breaking, breaking point. 
So we want to avoid a kind of lukewarmness or mediocrity, but not uh, fall into the opposite. For it so happened in our days that certain brothers abandoned their cells and exiled themselves to a trackless, barren, and completely waterless region. These brothers had previously been given many warnings by the fathers, but they were not persuaded by their admonition, saying, we are going there in order to live like cattle. But when they reached the most arid desert region, being surrounded on all sides by the wilderness, where they found not the slightest material comfort, they began to be sorely vexed. They then started to return to their monasteries, but could not reach them. Exhausted by the lack of provisions, by thirst and by excessive heat, they fell to the ground, ready to expire. By divine providence, however, some travelers were journeying through that desert, found some of them who were almost at death's door. After putting them on their animals, they conveyed them to their monasteries, where they remained sick for quite a while. Thereafter, they learned from experience not to follow their own will. The rest who were not discovered gave up their spirits in the places where they fell down in exhaustion, and their bodies were devoured by birds and wild beasts. And so, you know, they experienced the consequence of this excessive kind of asceticism. Uh, there's a story from the life of St. Philip Neri where one of his spiritual sons wants to take upon himself the practice of vigils, of you know, breaking the night every night to get up to pray. And Philip was uh, uh, a man of pure, pure heart, so also very discerning, and could see the lack uh, in, in this individual uh, of constitution to be able to do this, but also what was driving it. And so he forbids him to do it. He keeps telling him no every time he asks to do it. And yet the uh, young man takes it upon himself. And the first time, the first night he does it, he hurts himself so, so much, so physically, that he's unable to pray for quite a long period of time. He makes himself sick in the process. So very much like this story, uh, not so extreme, but uh, on a certain level, uh, this warning remains, you know, not, not to be excessive in those disciplines. Uh, again, it, it's moderation and it's rather, what's important is that these things lead us to God and direct us to him, not again, to elevate our ego. And believe me, you know, asceticism and spirituality can be one of the most powerful things in the sense of feeding our egos. Uh, especially, you know, when, when we think it's the will of God, uh, is probably the most powerful thing in the world and the most powerful delusion to over, overcome once a person is convinced that what they are doing is something that's guided by the Spirit. John writes, not sure where this poem came from, but on the subject of spiritual pride, here's one stanza. That stanza didn't come through. You maybe you're still typing it. We'll give them a chance to see if it comes, at least it's not coming through on mine. Did it come through on anybody else's? Okay. Okay. We'll give them a, I'll watch for it to pop up here. Oh, he's typing, I see him. Okay. Uh, 
So, let's see. Many others, having been enticed by prideful thoughts, still expose themselves to fearsome risk when they depart, supposedly for the sake of asceticism, to regions that are totally barren and waterless. Some of them distance themselves from other monks since they do not want to show submission or cannot endure serving their brothers, and thus they fall to the same danger. So uh, the, the reason for the, this you know, movement into deeper solitude is really that one can't bear to be around others. So it has nothing to do with the solitude that is driven by the desire for God and the desire for prayer, but the solitude of being free from the, the company of men. And at times that can be a very seductive kind of thing. I find myself every other day posting images of cabins in the woods and, uh, you know, I know I have to tell myself now, now, you know, the, the reason for that is because there seems to be something blissful about that idea uh, that ne isn't necessarily godly. Uh, okay, John writes, and when the prayer unto my lips doth rise, let me but offer thee some glorious sacrifice. Let me accomplish some great work for thee. Subdue it, Lord, let my petition be. Make me but useful in this world of thine in ways according to thy will, not mine. Beautiful. Do, do you know who it's, wrote it? No idea. But it, it does capture, I think, everything that we've been talking about, that, that it would be according to the will of God. Uh, and, and again, you know, we're, we're thinking about the conformity to Christ in this, you know, let this cup pass me by. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but th thy will be done. That uh, in the spiritual battle, we can find ourselves being pulled in multiple directions, you know, by trials or towards things that seem to be good. Louise writes, Father, would you see anorexia as an ego-based asceticism driven by diabolical obsession? Uh, it could be, well, diabolical in the sense that it's, it does produce a profound e uh, evil in them, which is, you know, uh, potential death, certainly. Uh, and I think the evil one does use a lot of the th things that we struggle with on a psychological level then to tempt us. Uh, a lot of things like anorexia are rooted in, it's thought, you know, this um, sort of traumatic experience, and especially with anorexia, it's often thought with the, mo uh, the mother figure in a uh, person's life. And that the internalized image then is, uh, is so traumatic, but what's taking place there is a kind of starving, a putting to death of what has been internalized. And, uh, and so the person will, you know, is basically in the process of starving themselves to death, but it really has to do with what's going on on a psychic or psychological level. Uh, but uh, asceticism in and of itself it can be the become the most profound uh, defense mechanism. So a person can enter into fasting in an almost anorexic 
kind of way, not because of the psychological reasons that a, a typical person diagnosed with anorexia would be doing, would be starving themselves. A person uh, who embraces asceticism and fasting might be trying to control uh, their, their passions, especially uh, their se sexual appetites uh, and uh, you be using the asceticism, but in this way that's disconnected from prayer uh, uh, and disconnected from that relationship from God. And so it becomes this way of altering the emotional state which fasting does. We, we know, you know, when we, there's a humbling of the mind and the body that takes place, but a person can practice it in a way that is wholly disconnected from God, but because of the emotional uh, effect that it has upon them. And, uh, and this can be, uh, you know, even those psych that psychologically rooted as well, uh, a person can be driven by the evil one thinking that they are overcoming or transforming a passion when they are merely uh, rep repress repressing it. The repression would be an unconscious defense. So they're using asceticism, the fasting, but in such a way to repress uh, the bodily appetites and desires. But eventually, the problem is, is that they manifest them, a person might fast for 10 years, and it might bear fruit, they might repress those sexual appetites in a, in a very profound way, because of the, the, how stringent they are, and harsh they are with themselves. But the problem is, eventually, they have to deal with reality, or they encounter something that awakens what they believe has been put to death within them by this ascetical practice. And then it, it explodes and comes to the surface with an even greater power. And, uh, and so all of that, I think, can be a kind of a diabolical oppression uh, where a person is driven to do certain spiritual things or to think things are spiritual, like an anorexic, for anorexics, I think it's typical the the vision of themselves even becomes distorted. Their vision of reality is distorted. They see themselves as being normal or even overweight. Whereas for the one who's embraced fasting in this kind of uh, uh, extreme way, and but as uh, defense to repress other desires might not be driven to the extreme of death because of it, but still be deluded into thinking that they're pure of heart simply because they're not afflicted by that particular passion any, uh, any longer, or at least for the time being. So this is where spiritual direction becomes very important and why we see even in these early fathers, they're, uh, uh, having their disciples reveal to them their thoughts of the given day. You know, every thought that would come to mind or that came to mind throughout the day and certainly to reveal to them why it is that they would want to take upon themselves certain spiritual disciplines because we can be driven by spiritual, uh, uh, the uh, temptation by the evil one himself 
or we can be through again those temptations be deluded on a certain level thinking that we're more virtuous than what we are or psychologically there could be something going on and so uh you want to have somebody guiding you in the spiritual life who is as astute as the fathers were and that that, that comes not simply by training or reading like you get that not from any book you get it from living the life this capacity to discern because discern arises out of purity of heart and so to find a spiritual elder that is pure of heart that can you know to see can see these things going on can be a rarity in our day um not that there aren't those who offer good spiritual counsel but have the psychological astuteness of the desert fathers they, these guys were the first step psychologists i mean they they knew the, the workings of the mind and the heart very well and so you could parse out what was going on within their disciples and plus they were involved in with them on a much deeper level than the typical spiritual director would be now you know that they lived with them they worked with them they prayed with them they they knew them very well uh and uh whereas now you know it's often we are walking on our own or it's the blind leading the blind and so it, we have to be very careful i mean thank goodness that we have the writings of the fathers uh we have the grace of the sacraments you know to help strengthen and guide us but i think in our day and age we have to be even more vigilant so that brings us to 8:30 anybody have any uh final comments okay paul pfeiffer found the the poem and provided us a link for it thanks appreciate that and the follow up to the other stanza first stanza is let me not die before i've done for thee my earthly work, whatever, I'm sorry, it shifted there, whatever it may be, call me not hence with uh, mission unfulfilled. Let me not leave my space of ground untilled. Beautiful. And Louise, oh, psychodynamic clinician. Uh, the, the, we have something in common there, at least in terms of what we study. Glad to have you as part of the group. So thank you all, it was, uh, again, superb group great questions thank you john uh for the poem as well so a lot to think about here again you know hold on as we go through these stories uh they again they can be jarring but i think what's being uh put before us is pretty important uh sandy first time listener welcome uh and you can get a copy of the evergatinos through Oh boy, Ren, help me out with this. Are you here with us, Ren? Um, yeah, the um, Center for Traditionalist Orthodox Studies. Okay. Uh, yes, and you can go to their website and order directly from them because it's unlikely that you'll find it on Amazon, and not for any cheaper than what you would get it from uh, from them, anyways. And get it get it while you can, because once these things go out of print, uh, it can be very hard uh, to get your your hands on them. Actually, when we ordered them, we ordered fifty cop fifty sets of of the four volumes and went through all of them pretty quickly. 
for that reason. You know, we ordered them like two years before the group started just to make sure that we had them on hand. So get it while you can. Same thing with uh, Isaac the Syrian's acetical homilies. If while you can get your hands on that, uh, I'd get yourself a copy too. Because once these go out of print with some of these companies, it's hard to, or with some of these monsters, it's hard to know when they'll become available. Okay. So when we close there, as, as always, with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.